For the past uh, several weeks, we have been uh, looking at the Sermon on the Mount that uh, is recorded for us in the book of Luke. So I want to invite you right up front to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, we're going to encounter uh, a warning, a pretty stiff warning that uh, Jesus gives us to pay attention to what we listen to and then to pay attention to our lives. I have to say that it's, <laughs> it's pretty easy to stand up here and take um, lob uh, truth bombs at uh, false teachers, to take pot shots at prosperity gospel enthusiasts. In fact, there are people who have made their living doing that very thing. I remember watching TV one uh, afternoon after I'd had uh, knee surgery. I was watching some uh, preacher on TV, and he invited me to place my hands on the TV and join him as we prayed. And so, um, I did. And uh, those of you that know my last year, I had two new knee surgeries this last year. It didn't work. But, but there was still hope. He offered for $19.99, I could get a little prayer cloth that I could put on my mantle. And that would solve my problems. Well, I didn't do that, and I'm sure that's where the breakdown was. But you see, it's, it's pretty easy to look at that and say, what is going on with that? I mean, there are all kinds of theatrics that are produced for television that have nothing to do with the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's one thing when it's that obviously out of bounds, but it's another thing when a handsome, energetic, charismatic preacher uh, talks to you about how much God loves you and he doesn't want you to suffer. And you have to say, well, is that right? Is that wrong? Probably even more importantly, how will I know? And those things happen all the time. There are people who have all kinds of variations on a theme. Part of it's good, part of it's not good. Some of them want you to uh, believe in Jesus and have a happy family. Some of them want you to believe, believe in Jesus and um, uh, also stand for uh, your country. They want you to be God and something. They want you to be uh, all in on their thing and add Jesus on the side. There's all kinds of varieties of that. And Jesus knew that there would be hucksters. He knew there would be charlatans and salespeople. They were there in the beginning and they're with us still. So how do you recognize a false teacher or false prophet? Jesus tells us in our text this morning. And then he warns us about our vulnerability, not just to them, but to our own heart. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning of verse 15, Jesus extends the call that he started at the beginning of the chapter for us to be discerning. And so, 
this is a, uh, a discernment invitation. So let's begin reading in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear uh, bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so here we have warnings against false prophets and false professions. Because both the false prophets and the false professions mock the true kingdom life that Jesus came to bring, and both result in judgment. Jesus, first of all, warns against these false prophets because they are wolves in sheep's clothing who bear bad fruit. On the one hand, Jesus says, they're hard to recognize because they disguise themselves. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. On the other hand, Jesus says, they're easy enough to recognize because you can see their fruit. On the one hand, they're dangerous and deceptive. On the other hand, they're obviously rotten. John Stutt says, surely it is not an accident, therefore, that Jesus' warning about false prophets in the Sermon on the Mount immediately follows his teaching about the two gates, the two ways, the two crowds, and the two destinations. For false prophets are adept at blurring the issue of salvation. Some so muddle and distort the gospel that they make it hard for seekers to find the narrow gate. Others try and make out that the narrow way is, in reality, much broader than Jesus implied, and that to walk it requires little, if any, restriction on one's belief or behavior. Still others, perhaps the most dangerous of all, dare to contradict Jesus and to assert that the broad road does not lead to destruction, but that, as a matter of fact, all roads lead to God. And that even the broad and narrow roads, although they lead off in opposite directions, ultimately both end in life. No wonder Jesus likened such false teachers to ravenous wolves. Not so much because they're greedy for gain, prestige, or power, though many of them are, but because they are ferocious and extremely dangerous. 
they are responsible for leading some people to the very destruction which they say does not exist. And so, there is the danger of these deadly wolves waiting to surprise unsuspecting sheep. Maybe as we take up the idea of what it means to be a false prophet, probably is a good idea to think, what is a true prophet? Maybe we should ask that question first. A true prophet, most simply defined, is someone who speaks for God. Someone who speaks to people on God's behalf. I think probably as used here, it's a broad category that includes not only false prophets, but false teachers or false leaders or false anything else that would claim to lead people in the way that God desires. And so as you think about a prophet who speaks on behalf of God, you have to ask the question, why would anyone want to be a prophet in the first place? We have a personal testimony from one prophet. His name is Jeremiah. And in chapter 20 of his uh, book, he, he tells us what it is like to be a prophet. He says, O oh Lord, you deceived me, and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I and have prevailed. I'm in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. For when I spoke, I cried out, and I shouted violence and plunder, because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not mention of him. I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. For I heard many mocking. Look, there's a man who lives in terror. All my acquaintances watched for my stumbling, saying, perhaps he can be deceived, then we'll prevail against him. And we'll take revenge on him. Cursed be the day, he says, in which I was born. Let the day not be blessed in which my mother bore me. Let the man be cursed who brought news to my father. A male child has been born to you, making him very glad. And let the man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew and did not relent. Let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noon because he did not kill me from the womb that my mother might have been my grave. Why did I come forth from the womb to see labor and sorrow that my days should be consumed with shame? I mean, that's a serious, that's a serious um, statement of unhappiness, isn't it? He doesn't even want his birthday because the burden of being a prophet is so heavy because the prophet is accountable to God whether people like it or not, and they won't. And so the accountability we see here too, these ravenous wolves, these trees that bear bad fruit will be cut off and cast into the fire. There is accountability for them for sure. But yes, he talks about them as being dangerous wolves and so you have to be careful because you can't really tell all the time because they look like one of us 
because they look like a sheep. That's part of their plan. And so he says, on the one hand, be careful. You can't tell. On the other hand, he says, it is pretty easy to tell. In verses 16 and verse 20, both. He repeats the same refrain and he says, you'll recognize them by their fruits. You'll recognize them by their fruits. So that seems to be the main idea. That there, the, these teachings of these false prophets result in something. They bear some sort of fruit. Well, I know that if you leave an orange in the refrigerator too long, it gets this sort of green coat on it. If you drop a banana, it'll bruise and it'll look awful. But what does fruit look like from a teacher or from a false teacher? You'll know them by their fruit. I think as you go down through the rest of these verses, you have to say that the fruit looks like the quality of life of the followers. What is what do the lives look like of those who were under his teaching? When the false prophet speaks for the Lord, what happens in the life, the lives of the people? That's what he's getting at, especially in verses 21 through 23. And it surprises me. It surprises me that, that this is the way you evaluate it. The valuation's not doctrinal. It's not, does somebody say the right thing? Do they check the boxes that agree with me <laughs> or with, agree with my other favorite teachers? It's not even, is the person biblical? Is what he's saying right here in the Bible? I mean, I'm going to say both those things are pretty important. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says the evaluation rests squarely in the lives of the listeners. What is going on? What is happening in their lives? If the teachers are thistles and brambles, they won't bear grapes and figs. Or say it another way, followers, listeners, Christians will not be grapes and figs if they're listening to these false teachers. The question is, does the tree bear good fruit? And I'm just going to say that this, this just stopped me in my tracks. Because I've been at this for almost 30 years. And to think that God will evaluate my life, the investment of my energy, my teaching, by the quality of the lives of the people in this church is very humbling and uh, very uh, alarming. To me. Because Jesus is suggesting that you can reverse engineer the teaching. 
you can take a look at the people who are hearing the teaching and believing it and buying into it, and that will tell you about the falseness or the trueness of the prophet. You can start with the fruit and work backward to see how healthy the tree is. And so I have to ask questions, and probably you should too. Are people becoming more confident or more fearful? Are they polarized or unified? Are they apathetic or active? Are they pursuing Jesus or merely their own pleasure? Is their identity primarily tied up in the kingdom of heaven? Or are they finding that their works and their politics and their education, their family, gets equal billing with Jesus? Because fruit, this is the tricky part, fruit takes a long time. You don't see it right away. You can't plant a tree in your backyard and expect right away to harvest anything. It's going to come over time. And so, as the years unfold, you begin to see, is that teaching making people change in a way that fits the kingdom of Jesus? Are the people becoming more poor in spirit or are they becoming proud? Are they mourning or are they becoming trivial? Because ultimately, it goes back to really what Jesus is teaching right here. Is your life becoming more like this or not? That's the sure way to discern about the teaching. And people have always been this way. They were this way, obviously, when Jesus gave the sermon. He said, you're going to need to pay attention here. And they're this way still. Because people have always been inclined to look for an easier path than Jesus offers. So much so that in his letter to Timothy, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with a complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And so the test isn't really doctrinal because people can fake doctrine. But you can't fake character change. You can't fake transformation that comes as the Holy Spirit uses the living and abiding Word of God to change people's lives. They may look like sheep and be wolves. You may not see it right away, but you can see the fruit over time. And so that for us, of course, is a stiff warning, but that's just the start. 
That's just the first swing that Jesus takes. The second is much closer to home. It becomes much more direct. Rather than being about false prophets, it's about false professions. Look at what he has to say then in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Saying, Lord, Lord, doesn't get you into the kingdom. Doing the will of God does. Having the right words doesn't get you into the kingdom. Praying the right prayer doesn't get you into the kingdom. Jesus is taking aim really at two things here. He's taking aim, first of all, at someone who would put faith in their own words. Who would say, Lord, Lord, I said the right thing. I asked Jesus into my heart. I accepted Christ. I prayed the sinner's prayer. Whatever it may be, you're putting your faith in that experience. It's misplaced. Then he says that there are those who not only put their faith in their own words, they put their faith in their own works. They put it in their profession and they put it in their performance. When they say, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we we do all this stuff that you ask us to do in your name? Somehow, they were sure they had done the right thing. Just like the others who were sure they had said the right thing. So this is stunning. This is something I think that we all need to internalize for sure because it would be the worst of all outcomes, wouldn't it? To say, Lord, Lord, and have him say, I never knew you depart from me. You can say the right thing and you can do the right thing and still not be part of the kingdom of heaven. The verses that precede the ones we're looking at this morning are about two ways. There's a broad road that leads to destruction, the narrow, hard road that leads to life. And apparently, it's possible to be standing outside that narrow gate thinking you're on the other side of it. That there are those who will say, Lord, Lord, I... Am I not inside this gate? And apparently, we can deceive ourselves about this. See, one of the things that I have really appreciated about this sermon from Jesus is that uh, the Sermon on the Mount is that he is a master at getting to the heart of the matter. Nobody is better at, at singling out the heart issue than Jesus. 
After all, I mean, he had talked about the law, and what did he say? He said, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say, don't even be angry. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say, don't even lust. What he's saying is that what goes on in the heart that, that even precedes the action, it's the heart that matters. So again, I think that's where we have Jesus pointing here. It isn't the words and it's not the activities. Is your heart all His? Does your heart belong to Jesus completely? Does your heart beat in sync with His? Or are you comfortable outside the narrow gate? without a heart that's been transformed. I think it's easy for us to, to think about our own uh, selves and our own perspective and think, well, of course Jesus wants me in heaven. Of course Jesus wants me in all the way, right? He wants me with Him forever. And somehow we start thinking that how could we miss? But I would suggest to you that the Sermon on the Mount is telling us that Jesus is building a kingdom. He is building uh, embassies of that foreign kingdom now called the church. He's preparing ambassadors to represent Him in the world because that kingdom is coming. That is different than him providing fire insurance for a bunch of folks. Jesus is not creating a kingdom so that there can be some of us who sort of gingerly tiptoe across the line and say, whew, I'm in. Look at that. Now, we shouldn't marvel that we're in, no doubt. But Jesus is looking for us to be all the way in, to belong to Him in a way that is completely unnatural. In fact, it's supernatural. Saying the right words don't get you into the kingdom, neither is doing the right things. And Jesus... It, Jesus tells us what it is here. Doing the will of my Father, right? And then later, this is, I think, the, the centerpiece because this, this defines for us what doing the will of my Father is when He says, depart from me, I never knew you. It's your relationship that you have with Jesus that gets you in and keeps you in. It is knowing God and being known by God that makes you a kingdom citizen. It is that heart matter that Jesus and I are in this together. 
So don't think for a minute that your religion is somehow mechanical or somehow a matter of obligation because it's personal. Because you must have a person. You must close with Jesus. I can say it's personal. I can talk about a personal relationship with Jesus. And you can misunderstand that, but I want you to know it's personal to Jesus. Depart from me, I never knew you. See, where is that the question, don't we? Do you know Jesus? The defining question really is, does Jesus know you? Are you on a personal level with the king of this kingdom? Or have you just gone about the motions such that you're close to the gate but not in? Such that you said the right words but your heart's not been changed. These are the things I think that Jesus is addressing when He warns us. It says there are people who say, Lord, Lord, and they're not coming in. Because knowing Jesus is the key to the kingdom. There is no kingdom without the king. There is no heaven without a savior. There is no hope without a cross. When I say there's a personal relationship, there's nothing more personal than God sending you a person whose name is Jesus. Such that He is inviting you, even this morning, into a relationship with Him so that your life has changed forever. Sometimes we talk about it in terms of faith. You must believe in Jesus. Which is a good way to talk about it. The Bible uses that all the time. Or you must accept Jesus. That's not unfair to use those terms either. But you must realize that faith is not mere words saying, Lord, Lord. What faith is, faith is an all-in response to Jesus. If you believe, you are all in. There is no plan B. To believe in Jesus is to forsake the old and to put yourself at Jesus' complete disposal. Is to belong completely to Him. Now, I'm trying to use words like all in. I'm trying to use non-religious sorts of words. Okay, For those of you that are worried about me, I can use religious words. John the Baptist said, repent and believe the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what repentance is. Repentance is saying, I'm all in with Jesus. I'm all out of that. I want Jesus more than anything. Don't merely say, Lord, Lord, and call it good. And so I hope and pray that you will be all in with Jesus today.
Because John the Baptist himself, when he's talking about repent and believe, he's saying, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's the way he talks about it. That's, where, that's what Jesus is building on here. It looks a certain way when you are part of the kingdom. Because your life is now right side up. It's defined by being poor in spirit and meek. By mourning and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It is a different kind of life than you lived prior to. It's one of the reasons that we all enjoyed the baptism a few moments ago. Because there were three people who were willing to say. That's one of the reasons that we even immerse, right? I'm all in. Because I belong to Jesus. Now, I think it's easy for us, really, to keep this at a little bit of arm's length and to look for false teachers. There are all kinds of discernment blogs and people who will highlight mistakes that people make. They will be called out for them on social media for sure. But it's much more urgent to make sure that your faith is not fake. It's one thing to have a false teacher. It's another thing for yourself to be a false talker. Because false prophets can be a long ways from home. But what I hope as a result of this morning is that you will never look a false professor in the mirror again. That you will be all the way in with Jesus. So there is no question about hanging around the gate or trying to discern, is this good enough? But follow Jesus. Be marked by those beatitudes. Be, have your actions governed by uh, chapter 7, verse 12. If you want somebody to do it for you, do it for them. Walk the hard road without being ashamed of Jesus. Because there is no better way to be human than to live life in the kingdom of heaven. There is no more certain way to have joy now and eternal joy later than following King Jesus in his kingdom. Won't you be all in with me today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have invited us into your kingdom, that there is this crossroads where the narrow road and the broad road meet. Father, don't let anyone else deceive us. And Father, would you kindly, don't let us deceive ourselves. Father, grant us the grace to go all the way in to go farther in and higher up, that we might know you, that we might be known by you, and that we might have the privilege of calling you our Father and enjoying life in your family. So God, I pray that each of us, myself included, would give up those parts that we kept out 
and that we'd get all the way in. That we would not deceive ourselves or be deceived. Father, we love Jesus and we're happy to surrender to him as our king. Would you help us do that? In his name, amen.